Good morning. I am convinced after declaring those words with all of you that there is not perhaps a word that we need more today from the Lord than the truth, the present reality that he will indeed hold us fast. Javier Rodriguez, a 15-year-old boy and 21 others were in the news recently, each killed in a racially motivated onslaught in El Paso, Texas. Carlos Hernandez Vasquez, a teenager from Guatemala, is the most recent to die this year while in the custody of the Border Patrol reports still coming in from the Bahamas state simply that there is nothing left as the number of dead there remains still unknown. I could go on and on with headline after headline filled with heaviness from this year. But the reality of what happens in our everyday lives, broken marriages, unjust bosses, cancerous cells, shattered relationships, broken brains, church division, miscarriages, death. Each assaults our peace and confronts our trust. Each invades our faith with questions which, like bombs, tick down moment by moment towards zero when they might just finally explode and obliterate the tattered bits that remain of our belief in God. Life is hard, and church, this has been a hard year. Can we just acknowledge that reality together? Can we just, for one moment, stop and mourn that together? As we end this series, it is important that we turn the statement, we can trust the Bible, into a question. Can I trust the Bible to actually help me? Can I trust the Bible when my children rebel? Can I trust the words of God when death shows up at my doorstep? When relationships fall apart? 
when I lose my job, when anxiety overwhelms, can the words of God help me? Can we trust the Bible in troubled times? Or to put it another way, how is the Bible sufficient to help me navigate every moment of my life? You can go ahead and be turning in the scriptures. Our text for today will be in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want us to see from the text today that Peter wrote 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, that we would know and truly trust that the great and very precious promises of God accomplished in Christ Jesus are sufficient and sure to give us every single thing we need in this life now. And are indeed strong to keep us secure until life eternal with him. As we walk through the text today, I want us to see that the text answers many of the questions that we have. First, for troubled times, what is it that God has given us? And we'll see that in fact God has given us an unfailing and sufficient word. We will look at next how do we know that God's word is sufficient? Why is it that we need a sufficient word from the Lord? Next, what are we supposed to do with those words as we live in our everyday lives? And lastly, how is it that we can trust God's sufficient word will never fail? Let's ask God for help as we set out together. Let's pray. God, there has never been a word that you have spoken in vain. There has never been a moment where your words failed. There has not been a single time ever that a word that you uttered was wasted. And God, this is our hope today as hurting and broken and confused People who just are trying to get through each day. We can trust gathered here together today that you indeed have a word for us. You have spoken a word for us. And God, I pray that your word will indeed speak in power today. To draw people who are far off from you near. To comfort the broken. To offer healing and peace to the anxious and depressed. That God, your words will be victorious over sin and death now and forevermore.
That you will defeat our doubts. That you will calm our questions. And you will bring our hearts today to a place where we can trust indeed. That your words are true and will hold us fast. So God, let your word do a work today that is powerful and completely disproportionate to who I am as the messenger. Meet us with your spirit, we pray. Amen. Again, we're in 2 Peter 1. We'll be starting in verse 3 this morning. And Peter writes this. His, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or goodness and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities, these virtues are yours and are increasing, they keep you. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgot that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we begin to look at this text today, It's important that we don't miss the fact that there is an on-ramp to verses 3 through 11. Peter gave us an introduction to the book in verses 1 and 2. And verse 2, in particular, outlines for us the purpose of the entire letter that he's written. And also for our text today. Look at the text. In verse 2, Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter's desire in writing this letter is for all to come to know God. And in knowing him receive in multiplying measure grace and peace. Therefore as we see in verse 3. Peter turns immediately to the resources that are available to us 
who desire to know God. Indeed, Peter wants to begin his letter with the true and unfailing reality that God has already in Christ Jesus given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Look at the text. Peter writes in verse 3 that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. But this statement leaves us with a question. If God has indeed given us everything that we need for life and for godliness, what exactly is it that he's given us and why in the world does that matter? Before continuing on in the text today, I think it's important for us to see that God has provided rich resources according to his divine power that we would have everything that we need for life and for godliness. So we're going to walk through seven resources from the scriptures that God has given us for life and for godliness. First, God from the beginning gave us creation so that we would know that he is God. Indeed, in every square inch of all of creation, God is declaring mine and my work. All of creation resounds with the chorus, with the words that sing beautifully to the majesty and power and glory and dominion of God, that he is God uniquely and there is none other like him. Look at Psalm 19. The psalmist writes in verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is committed in every last inch of creation to revealing the reality that he is creator and God and king. God doesn't just speak through what he has created though. No, God speaks to us directly. He gives us his words. He meets Adam and Eve in the garden and speaks to them the way of life. His breath and words awaken life in all of creation and shows them what it is to live. God hasn't just given us some words, though. He gives us specific words. He gives us a covenant. His promises so that we would know that he was not done with us, even though we rebelled and hated him. In the garden, God promises once and for all to crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin one day in Genesis 3. After the flood and our growing sin, God promises to never curse the ground because of our sinfulness. Nor destroy every living creature as he did in the flood in Genesis 8. God promises, though sin continues to grow after the flood, Despite our ongoing rebellion, God promises and brings a promise to life through Abraham and Sarah, even though they doubted and they rebelled in Genesis 15 through 17. The pages of the scripture from there are indeed alive with the words of God, full of promise to save, to sustain, to empower, and to deliver God's people in this world. 
God doesn't just give us promises though. He gives us his law and his wisdom that we would know how to live. And having the promises of God would be empowered to live in that way in the world. Look again at Psalm 19 starting in verse 7. The psalmist declares that the law of the Lord is perfect. That it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More is to be desired in the law than gold. Even the much fine gold, sweeter is God's word than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And by them, the psalmist writes, by them is your servant warmed. In keeping them, there is indeed great reward. God doesn't stop here though. He doesn't just speak these words out. No, he puts flesh on the word, his son, and sends him to earth to perfectly keep the law in every place where we failed, to perfectly trust the promises of God in every way that we have doubted. Jesus, the God-man, became the perfect sacrifice to perfectly fulfill the demands of the law, to perfectly defend sin and death, at last perfectly crushing the head of the serpent. He perfectly rose up from the dead, perfectly ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father, where even now he perfectly prays for us. And we can add not one minutia, not one iota to the work that God has definitively once and for all accomplished in Christ Jesus. And even as Christ ascended, God in his wisdom did not leave us alone. No, God's spirit has now at last come. Perfectly fulfilling the desire of the son that we would be empowered in the world as new creations to follow in his way. God has left us with his spirit at work in our hearts to make the words that he has spoken live. God has spoken. His words are true. And we can actually know them because God's words through all of history what he has accomplished, what he has done, his commitment to what he is going to do has been recorded in the pages of the Bible that each and every word would testify to his beauty, to his glory, to his steadfastness, to his trustworthiness, to his never gonna stop, never gonna fail for you faithfulness. His word declares there is a better way to live and he provides in his word the power for us to walk in that way. Indeed, his divine power 
church has given us every single thing that we need for life and godliness now and forevermore. But this still leaves us with a question. How is it that we come to know God's word as sufficient? Look back with me at the text. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Yes. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We come to know and experience the sufficiency of God's word as we come to know God himself. And we come to know God by his word, by his call to us. The reason the child of God has everything they need for all of life is that Christ has called believers by means of his own moral excellence and glory. Christ's call, as Peter outlines here, is an effective one, meaning that it accomplishes what it is supposed to accomplish. As we come into contact with God's words, with the majesty of who Jesus is, seeing indeed that Christ in his way is best, those who experience these words, this call, can do nothing else in this life but follow in that way into salvation. When God calls, when he speaks, it is always both effective and performative. The word of God goes out and is supposed to do something to us. And as we hear it and apprehend in the words of God, the beauty of Christ and the supremacy of God in all of the earth, in all of creation, there is nothing else that it can do other than what it's meant to do, which is transform us. But y'all, we like to think of this call, God's words, his invitation as something like what we get in the mail that we can say yes or no to, discard or hold on to. This is something completely different. Peter has something deeper in mind here. When God speaks, when he calls, it does something. It creates life. It creates faith. We are called to Christ's glory and excellence in the text in verse 3. And these terms come together to point us toward the same reality. Those whom God saves are called by Christ. And this calling is accomplished through the knowledge of Christ's glory and goodness. When Christ calls people to himself, when they perceive his beauty, when they experience the loveliness of his character, as he becomes, in experiencing the words of God, increasingly attractive, God's words become saving words. God speaks to save. And this means... That those who now know God, 
who have experienced these words have indeed everything that they need for life and for godliness. Yes, indeed, they have everything they need for eternal life. This eschatological, at the end, gift of life that has nonetheless been inaugurated and broken in to this present age through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This eternal life that is ours in Jesus is fully ours in the last day, but is nonetheless really and truly ours here and now. And as we come to know God, as we see his beauty, we see that his words aren't just words, they are promises given and promises kept. These words hold up and are sufficient to give us everything that we need, not one day for eternal life, but for life in its fullest here and now. We find in these words instruction for marriage and for parenting, help for difficult bosses and impossible roommates. We find hope for our hurting and comfort for our tears. God's words make sense of suffering, provide meaning to our lives, and tell us how then we should live. Don't miss this. God's words make sense of suffering. They provide meaning to all of our lives. And they show us the way that we should live. And this right here is why we need this sufficient word. Look at the text. Life and godliness are intimately connected here. And Peter doesn't do this on accident, no. He's doing it to show us that godliness is linked to life because we don't gain eternal life one day, nor do we have life to the fullest here and now apart from holiness that God gives us in Christ Jesus and works out by the power of his Holy Spirit. So why is it again that we need God's sufficient word? As we continue to look at the text, we see that eternal life cannot merely be the experience of bliss that will one day be ours, but is rather the reality of eternal life breaking in in the here and now and transforming everything about who we are and everything we do with our lives. We have indeed been given everything, including these great and very precious promises in Jesus, so that as verse 4 outlines, we might become partakers of the divine nature and escape corruption in the world. This is why we need God's words. We don't know how to live on our own. Have you ever looked at the world and said, this isn't the way it's supposed to be? We all have. Well, if this isn't the way the world is supposed to be, then there must be a, wor a way that the world is supposed to be. And there must be someone who can tell us how the world's supposed to be and how to bring that into reality. If you are doubtful that these words are sufficient, know this. 
If nothing else, God has spoken and told us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that he has a way that the world is supposed to be, and that because of what he has accomplished in Christ Jesus and by the working of his Holy Spirit in this present age, we can enter into that work and find its consummation on the last day. The purpose of God's provision in verse 3 is to propel the child of God toward holiness in verse 4. That they would be empowered by his precious and very great promises to us. Don't miss this. The purpose of the provision of God in verse 3 is to propel the child of God toward holiness in verse 4. Empowered along the entire journey by the precious and very great promises of God accomplished in Christ Jesus. Believers then should live right now in a godly way. Even though perfection and godliness will not be fully ours until the day Christ returns. It is nonetheless really something we should experience here and now. The word godliness here in chapter 1 anticipates what Peter is going to do in chapter 3 verse 11. Where the coming of the Lord is incentive and invitation into godliness here and now. Because it is the godly as we will see as we continue to walk through this text. That experience eternal life. We need to stop and ensure that we are not mistaken about what is really happening here. This godliness participating in the divine nature is not something that you or I do. It's actually not even something that we can contribute to at all. Because as Peter has outlined in the text, the gifts that are given to believers are rooted in the knowledge of Christ. And that is a work, as we've talked about, that Christ uniquely accomplishes for us. Indeed, everything needed for eternal life and for full life now is mediated through the knowledge of Jesus. It is the words of God that call us into the knowledge of God and indeed propel us deeper still into increasing knowledge of his beauty, excellency, glory, majesty. That we would be compelled to participate here and now in godliness. This participation in the divine nature also does not mean that we are somehow to become gods. No, we should understand from this text that God has given saving promises to his people so that they will increasingly become holy as he is holy. We become more like God 
and are becoming more like God even now as we escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires as our desires and loves are shifted and transformed and captured by the allure and beauty of Jesus Christ. It is God's word, God's call that delivers us from evil in this world now and holds us fast in holiness until we are at last made righteous fully in the last day. That's a lot. But we still have questions. What in the world should we do here and now with these words? And how can I know and really believe that these words won't fail? We'll examine those two questions next. First, what are we supposed to do with God's sufficient word? Look back with me at the text, starting in verse 5. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or goodness, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The relationship between verses 3 and 4 and 5 through 7 is crucial to how we live in the here and now. Track with me here. If God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, how should we live? And in verses 5 through 7, Peter provides the answer and summons the reader to a life of virtue and goodness. But we cannot miss the reality that the preceding verses 3 and 4 root any virtuous life that God calls his followers to in the grace that only he can supply. Believers are able to live in a way that pleases God because Christ uniquely has given them everything that they need for life and godliness. What we are called to do as followers of Jesus is empowered and undergirded by the already finished work of Jesus. Do not miss this. What you are called to do in your everyday life in pursuing holiness and loving God is already been accomplished, empowered, undergirded by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The call of the text is not some good standing accomplished through self-sufficient righteous living. There is not one thing you can do that makes Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, more sufficient or better. No, it is the work of God accomplished in Christ Jesus being worked out in the power of the Spirit for us that we need. The holy life that we are to live here and now. This life that God is calling us to in Jesus is summarized by Peter in this section in eight virtues. The structure and intent of the text is not to demonstrate that somehow 
these eight virtues alone comprise the full calling of the Christian life, but rather are structured and worked out as a literary device that is intent toward building increasingly toward a climax. The virtues in the text then don't necessarily build one upon the other, but rather each virtue in itself ends in its fully expression in the text in love. Let me say that again. The virtues in the text don't necessarily build on one another, but rather Peter is writing in this way to show us that the fullest expression of each virtue is love, which is the climax of 5 through 7. So we should focus our attention in this section on really how this list starts and how it ends. Faith listed first provides the foundation of all of the following virtue and roots each in the grace of God that Peter's outlined in verses 3 and 4. Love listed last is the climax of each of the preceding virtues and indeed is the goal and climax of the entire Christian life. Our lives then should be spent pursuing these virtues, Peter argues, pursuing faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection, but not for their own ends, but that each would culminate in love of God and love of neighbor. The reason God has given us a sufficient word is that our lives, our hearts, our affections, our thoughts would be aimed in the direction that they are supposed to go. Peter's writing this way to show us that the aim of knowledge isn't knowledge. The aim of knowledge is love. The aim of self-control is not just to live justly so that everybody can see how good you are. The aim of self-control is love of God and of neighbor. The aim of godliness and holiness in the world is love that our set apart lives would declare the beauty and glory of the one who has called us from darkness into marvelous light. None of this is about us. The aim of all of life is love. And Peter is laboring here that we would be convinced and captivated by the reality that God's love for us will and should end in love of him and love of others. This word that we have been given is indeed sure and trustworthy and helps in living all of our lives. This word is given to us that we would aim our parenting at love, that we would aim our marriages at love, that we would aim our friendships at love, that we would aim our work at love. It speaks deeply. God's word speaks deeply to how we suffer and still know love. How in the world it is that we can love in the midst of depression. How in the world, in the throes of anxiety, that we can still know and give love. This word declares a way to love in the face of even death. Don't miss this. God's word 
His words to us are sufficient, not because they give us all the information that we need to live our lives, but because they give us all the words that we need to rightly aim whatever it is we're doing in the world toward love. Let me say that again. God's words are sufficient, not because they give us all the information that we need to live our lives, but because they give us all the words that we need to rightly aim whatever it is we're doing in the world at love of God and of neighbor. This means that if you're looking to the Bible as an instruction on how to plumb as a plumber or how to count as an accountant, you will come away disappointed and ill-informed. But if you are coming to this word with a commitment to allow the words of God to shape and direct the plumbing that the plumber does and the counting that the accounting does and the work that each of us does, then the knowledge of God that we acquire in the world becomes aimed in the singular direction of love of God and his glory now and forevermore. This leaves us though, with one last question. How in the world can I know that these words won't fail? Look back at the text starting in verse 8. Peter writes, for if these qualities, these virtues, these attributes that he's just walked through are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that they are blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see immediately in the text that the four in verse eight links the last section of the text here to the preceding two sections and demonstrates for us how it is that we can trust that God's sufficient word will not fail. Peter desires that the reader would see that if the virtues listed in verses 5 through 7 are abounding in the life of the believer, their knowledge of Jesus Christ will indeed be full and effective, and that will keep them from failing. This is intimately intertwined with the beginning of the text as the virtues that God calls the follower of Jesus to in 5 through 7 are singularly empowered and dependent upon the grace of God that we have labored to outline that come through verses 3 through 4. The Christian life, our lives are effective and fruitful to the degree that the word of God, his words, save us and aim every area of our lives toward love. On the other hand, if these virtues are lacking, such persons are blind. 
They can't even see. Because they've forgotten how to walk in this life. And they've forgotten how to walk in this life because they have forgotten and ignored the reality of the forgiveness of sin that empowers them to walk as they should in the first place. Verses 10 and 11 bring further clarity. As the faith that God began, he also holds fast until the last day and keeps the follower of Jesus from stumbling by the power of his sufficient word. God's word will not, cannot fail because its purpose is to, is, its purpose is to sustain the faith that it begins. Let me say that again. God's sufficient word will not, cannot fail because its purpose is to sustain the faith that it begins. Look at Philippians 1.6 where Paul writes that he is sure of this, that he who has begun a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In the Gospels, we find Jesus holding himself out uniquely as the way, the truth, and the life. There aren't other ways, other truths, other lives. There is a way that we experience real truth and live our fullest lives. And the failing, the falling that the sufficient word keeps us from is falling from this way. That is, God's word is sufficient to call us into the way of life and keep us secure in that way until the last day. And this doesn't mean that we'll never sin once we've heard the word of God and follow in it. Rather, this means that when we do hear God's word and when we delight and follow in it, Even when we sin, we are reminded by those same words that there is a way for us to walk in. There is a truth for us to know and experience and love. And there is a life for us here and now that is full and will be fullest forevermore with him in glory. God's words, even when we sin, don't stop. Don't go away. They continue to invite us, to call us, to beckon us, to compel us into the way of Christ, who is more beautiful than our sin. And we learn again and again in these moments from Christ's words what it is to pray and to ask forgiveness when we do so. The work that God's word begins, it sustains and finishes. God's word is sufficient to keep our faith secure until the last day. But we must, 
We must continue to go back to the word time and time again because time and time again we need its power. We need its power to defeat the doubts that assail our minds. We need its power to quell the questions that never seem to go away. We keep going back to the word because our wayward hearts want to be aimed at what we love most and not what God loves most and certainly not toward anyone outside of ourselves. Our hearts by the power that God has given us in his word can be aimed and re-aimed day after day toward the love of God. We need his words to calm our anxious minds. We need his promises to speak back into the depression that seems to overwhelm us. We need it to speak to us the goodness of God when we suffer. We need God's word because we need to be reminded convinced, compelled that God's words to us are true. They do not fail and will hold us fast to glory. So those are all the questions, right? I think there's still one more. And this isn't a question that I can answer for you today. It is a question that each of you today and every day have to wrestle with. Where do you turn when troubled times come? When death shows up, where do we go? When depression eats away day after day at our joy, where do we go? When we do not think that for another moment we could possibly stand under the weight of the sorrow and difficulty in this world. What do we do? I can't answer that for you. But I can encourage you, beg you to consider your life and the things that you are turning to. How is binging Netflix working out for you in dealing with your depression and anxiety? How are drugs and alcohol working out for you in trying to quiet the trauma that you've lived through? How is relying on your own effort and ability at work working out for you in dealing with your difficult boss and impossible work situation? I cannot answer that question for you, but I can declare with complete confidence 
that if you have spent your life turning to those things and found them to be wanting, found them to have failed you and left you bruised and broken and hurting still, God has a sufficient word for you today. He has a word that will save you. He has a word that will hold you fast in this world in troubled times. And he has a word for you that delivers in the last day. So we're going to end our time today in worship going to end our time today at the Lord's table. See, for some of us, we have become nearsighted, as as Peter mentioned. We have forgotten the beauty of the forgiveness that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is time for us today to come again and to taste and see the glories and excellencies of him who has indeed not just forgiven our sin, but defeated it once and for all and provided victory for us. Some today have found their own words sufficient all week. They have, like me, gone through parts of days, entire days, and not cracked open this word to see what God has to say about all of just the crap that I'm going through. Can I encourage you that during our time of worship that you take a moment to hear from God? Many of us need to spend time today repenting of the reality that we have either thought that our way was sufficient or we have not believed God that his way is. But I beg you, you do not hear these words of God today and leave here the same person that you walked in as. As we worship and as we take the Lord's Supper, there is complete freedom in this place to seek out forgiveness, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to lay before God all of your troubles and hear his word to you. And if you have lived your entire life never trusting these words, there is nothing else more that I hope for you than you would come to know them and love them today. If you want to talk about any of that, I'll be down front. Some other folks probably will be as well. We would love to pray for you, to talk through those things. Now let us pray. God, we need you more than we think we do because we are weaker than we know. God, I pray that your word would do a work in our hearts today to convince us of our complete inadequacy and your total and perfect sufficiency. 
God, I pray that prayers of repentance would be lifted up, that reconciliation would flow from our hearts, that we would come to the table and taste and see that you are not just good, you are best. I pray that we would sing to you with hearts that are full of conviction and fuller still of forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. I pray that you would break your people today and convince us of our need for you and fill us with the unique joy that it is that you can give us having found at last the thing that we were made to treasure. God, I pray that you would make dead hearts alive in the gospel of Jesus today. Meet with us now. Fill this place with your spirit, we pray. Amen. So now we're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have declared that he is best, come. Taste and see and be reminded of his goodness. If you have not ever in your life heard the words of God and been convinced that they are true, that they are powerful to save, and they are what is best, then this meal is not for you, but this time, this time right now is for you. It is for you to come and to taste for the first time, to savor for the first time the beauty and the excellency of Jesus and to walk in a new way. But regardless of where you are today, there is freedom in this place to pursue the beauty and loveliness of Jesus Christ.